Good morning. Good to see you all. Okay, I have to tell you, I told you about my peacock friends. And I just thought, I have to tell you, while I've been working the last three weeks on these lessons, I'm in my breakfast room a lot. And the peacocks are stalking me. And they go from room to room, wherever I am in my house, and stare at me and peck on the glass. Wherever I go, the peacocks go. So today I'm actually leaving, trying to get out of the house, driving down my driveway, and the peacock jumps in the middle of the driveway and opens his tail feathers, (laughs) blocking my way to get here. So they like me for some reason. Okay, I can't believe this is our last week, and so thank you all for being faithful to God and His Word and being faithful to your friendships with each other. Um, I felt like you might be mad at me after doing chapter 13 uh, because I didn't give you a heads up about Judah, and we've been all excited about how great they were doing, and then we get to this really sad chapter. It's like, like... Watching a movie you love, knowing how it ends, telling somebody you, to watch it with you, but not telling them, the ending is really sad. So that's kind of what I did. But there's happy news. There's great things to learn from the sins of Judah that we can apply to our life. And then there's a bright hope at the end of the chapter for Israel and for us. So we'll remember that while we go through this. The last few weeks... We've really been talking a lot about God's great love for us today. I want us to think about the fact we need to have a great love for God. And that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, Even Jesus taught about this before he went back to be on his throne with his father. During those awful steps of his to the cross, Peter, his disciple, had made some very horrible choices. While Jesus was suffering in Gethsemane, he went to Peter, James, and John and said, Watch with me and pray. But Peter slept. Then when he was arrested in the garden, Peter fled. Then when he waited in the courtyard watching at the high priest's place while they interrogated Jesus, and they said to Peter, You're one of his. Three times Peter denied knowing him. In fact, the third time when they said, really, you belong with Jesus, he cursed at them. When Jesus hung on a cross, broken and rejected, Peter was not there. But Jesus still loved Peter. What Jesus wanted to expose was, did Peter still love Jesus? So after his resurrection, but before his ascension, he met with the disciples on a beach after they'd been out fishing in their boats. And he sat down and served them breakfast. And in around the fire, Jesus turned and looked full into Peter's face and asked him a question that made Peter's heart stop. Peter, do you love me? Do you truly love me more than these? We don't know for sure what Jesus meant more than these, but probably he's pointing to the boats the nets, the fish. Because Peter had decided, Jesus is gone, I'll just go back to my career of being a fisherman. Peter, do you love me more than these? 
Three times he asked Peter this, to declare his love for him, because three times Peter had denied him, and it grieved Peter's heart. But Jesus had great plans for Peter, to be the rock of the church, to be an evangelist, to be a missionary, to be a teacher, to proclaim truth, to lead people to Christ. And so Peter must love Jesus more than these. And these is anything that distracts us from our perfect devotion to God. And you and I know from history, Peter did love Jesus more than these. And I would have hoped to end the study in Nehemiah by saying, And Judah loved God more than these. But that's not the case. And it seems like God was asking Israel this question throughout all history. Israel, do you love me more than these? The pagan nations... The pagan gods' possessions. Do you love me more than these? And we can see by Israel's behavior throughout the years that for the most part, the answer was no. They treasured other things more than they treasured their God. And they were robbing God of the devotion that belonged to him alone. And right here, when I think about this, I think about, remember that old show, Lost in Space? Now, you've got to be pretty old to remember that show. <laughs> Lost in Space. But remember the robot, and he was kind of this round thing, and he had those springy arms? And if danger was coming, which happened every week, he would turn like this, and his arms would flail. Warning! Warning! Okay, during the time of Nehemiah, there was a prophet that was a lot like this robot named Malachi. And he was warning Judah of the dangers that were surrounding them during the time of Nehemiah. He cried out against their sins. So today we're going to pay attention to the warnings of Malachi. We're going to look at Judah because we don't want to repeat those mistakes. We want to keep our hearts totally devoted to God because there is a lot of heartache that comes with loving these more than we love God. Nehemiah was governor of Judah for 12 years. After 12 years of very hard work, uh, he returned to Persia and King Artaxerxes, you remember, who gave Nehemiah permission to go to Judah. Uh, I think his heart was full when he left Judah. Because he got to see Judah transformed physically, the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and he got to see the people transformed spiritually. But unfortunately, while he was gone to Persia, we heard the warnings of Malachi announcing the spiritual collapse of Judah. So it was a good time for Nehemiah to return. We don't know how long it was before he returned, probably a few years and maybe he returned, first of all, we know because he loved the people of God. He loved the city of God. But those warnings of Malachi probably also traveled into Persia. And Nehemiah caught wind of that. And so we can picture Nehemiah riding back up to Jerusalem, almost like he's repeating that night ride. Remember when he first went to Jerusalem, and it was nighttime, and so it was dark. And he rode around 
on his horse looking for the broken places of Jerusalem's walls and gates. This time he re-enters Jerusalem and it's dark again. But it's spiritually dark. And he roams around the city of Jerusalem, this time observing the broken places of Judah's faith. Remember that binding agreement we studied and it was so exciting in chapter 10? Oh, we're going to obey God. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're not going to do this. We love God. We're going to follow him. This is our covenant. Hey, that thing was filed away somewhere so deep. Nobody even seemed to remember it. The first sin that Nehemiah discovers is that Judah is robbing God by loving people more than God. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. God turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. But before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Judah sinned, replacing the treasures of the temple, with the enemy of God. Hard for us to even believe, because we've read a lot about our old friend Tobiah, and he raises his creepy head again in chapter 13. And let's remember who he is. He's an Ammonite, probably an official there, probably a governor there. He mocked and ridiculed the building of the wall. He accused the Jews of being traitors to the king. He had those infamous words, these walls will be so weak, if a fox should jump on it, they will break down. Those were some of his encouraging words. He even plotted with his buddies to stop the rebuilding by using intimidation. He planned on killing some of the people that were a part of rebuilding this wall. He sent letters personally to Nehemiah to intimidate him. And now this same guy has wormed his way in to the temple and is living in the courts of the house of God whenever he's in town. The house that he disdains. One of his rooms would have been the size of a small warehouse. Tobiah has his own temple penthouse. And he loves to hang out there. He used the storerooms for his things, the things that were meant to be housing the articles of Judah's worship. You know, it had to satisfy Tobiah to quietly take his things and remove the things of God, filling up some rooms with his things, and also probably some of those things were false gods inside the temple of God. Best of all for Tobiah, he was at the center of the Jews' place of worship. He was free to continue his evil influence, hurting the spiritual life of Judah. He could oppose their work while pretending to be a part of it. 
How in the world did he accomplish this? We read that this was through the invitation of the priest named Eliashib, who amazingly, if you remember in chapter 3, he worked on the sheep gate himself. I believe that was the gate he worked on. So Tobiah was closely connected to this priest through marital ties, and Eliashib was more interested in pleasing Tobiah than he was in pleasing God and fulfilling his spiritual duties that God had given the priesthood. I think he wanted to gain favor from Tobiah with his hospitality because Tobiah was somebody. He had lots of admirers in the area, supporters. He was esteemed in some circles in Judah. The nobles of Judah wrote and corresponded with him regularly. He had influence. He had power. And Malachi cries out to the priest, warning, warning. He had something to say about this. Look on your verse sheet, Malachi 2. God says, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you've turned from the way, and by your teaching you have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. And I think maybe at this point in Nehemiah's return is when he had them, the remnant, again, take out the book of Moses, read it, and reminded them the Moabites and the Ammonites are not to be a part of the temple assembly. And guess what Tobiah is? An Ammonite. Yet here he is. Now, they were told um, not to be a part of the temple because of when Israel was marching into the promised land, the Moabites and the Ammonites tried to stop them, didn't offer them support or encouragement. The Moabites even hired Balaam, you remember that story, to curse Israel. And I thought, that's what Tobiah has been doing all this time. The whole 52 days, he was cursing Israel while they rebuilt the wall. He was a current day Balaam in their midst. But because he was somebody, because he had connections, because he knew important people, because Judah cared about what people thought more than God, an enemy had infiltrated the very house of God. But Nehemiah is quick to take action and I don't have time. There were so many things we could have talked about in chapter 13. But wasn't he an outstanding leader? Did you notice that whatever correction he decided to do, everybody did it? His passion for God, his authority from God was not something to argue about. People did what he said. Look at verse 8. He says, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. His correction, remove the enemy, restore the temple. And let me tell you this, he won no popularity contest by these actions. This man, Tobiah, was much too important to come and find his clothes lying out in the street. Nehemiah didn't really care about winning a popularity contest. 
I think what may have been part of this is while Nehemiah was governor the first time in uh, Judah, um, there were people, there were Jews that weren't really a big fan of him trying to get them to become more and more distinct and separate as a nation as God had called them to. But while Nehemiah was around, they couldn't do much about that. I think they were laying low. When Nehemiah went back to Persia, those people rised up and said, hey, we got to connect, we got to be a part of trade, we got to have relationships with these other people. And slowly their distinctiveness, their spiritual identity was fading away. Tobiah is an example of that. So instead of giving in to people like Tobiah, Nehemiah quickly restores the rooms. He purifies them. He either did that ceremonially or just did some spring cleaning. Brought in back all the articles of worship so Judah could do what they're supposed to be doing, worshiping God. So what's the warning for us? Being a people pleaser allows an enemy access to the treasures of our faith. When Eliashib opened the temple doors for Tobiah, he was giving him permission to the most precious, sacred place of Judah. We do the same thing. When we invite intimacy with someone who's impressive outwardly while we're ignoring who they are inwardly, why should we desire intimacy with people who disdain our God? Why should we give them access to the most precious place of our faith where they can worm their way into the storehouses of our hearts that carry the articles of our beliefs and replace our faith with their own ideas, their own habits, their own philosophies. And just like Tobiah, they will be very satisfied to see their beliefs replace our beliefs. They will be happy to interrupt our worship and detour our faith. And I'm not talking about avoiding relationships with people who are lost. That's our calling. I'm talking about avoiding relationships with those who want to replace our spiritual treasures with their worldly treasures. Warning. Be on the lookout for that. Warn your kids going off to college about this. Our faith demands that we live to please God and not man, no matter how authoritative, how popular, how impressive, how influential someone else might be. We will always compromise our relationship with God when we care more about our relationship with others. The work of God in his temple, which is our heart, will be stopped when we love people more than we love God. Look at Galatians 1. Am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay. Nehemiah is continuing his journey into the spiritual darkness of Judah. He discovers another way Judah is robbing God. They are loving possessions more than they love God. Let's look at verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back 
to their own fields. So Judah's sin, failing to provide for the Levites in the temple storehouses. So let's review real quick the role of the Levites. From the tribe of Levi, years before, Levites had been given this really great spiritual privilege to be responsible for the spiritual health of the nation of Israel. And here's why. Remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and receiving direction and guidance from God for this children in the desert? Remember, they got tired of waiting, and what did they do? They built a golden calf. And then they're dancing around it, worshiping it, saying, here's the God who got us out of Egypt. When Moses comes down the mountain, he's pretty mad. He steps aside and he says uh, this saying, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the entire tribe of Levi went to Moses. That's why they have this wonderful privilege from God. The Levites that were from the direct line of Aaron, Moses' brother, they became priests. The, west, the rest were responsible for worship, temple needs, um, and other duties that revolved around worship, music, so because of these important responsibilities, God commanded the people back then, you've got to tithe to the temple to provide for the Levites. So it's very obvious what's going to suffer most when the people aren't providing for the Levites. The faith of the people of Israel. Their unique calling, the worship of God. This is where Nehemiah finds Judah. He goes into the storehouses after he kicks Tobiah out. What's in them? Nothing. Nothing is providing for the Levites. Silence is in the room. Without that provision, the Levites have gone out to earn a living. Out on the farms, in the fields. Who's singing out the name of God? Who's testifying of his goodness? Who's teaching his word? Who's leading Judah in prayer and worship? Look out in the distance. Look through a window from the temple, and you'll see what they're leading. They're leading flocks on a field. There's where the Levites are. Let's see what Nehemiah does. Verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. And I put... A priest, a scribe, and a Levite in charge of the storerooms. And I made Hannah their assistant because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for, for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Nehemiah's correction, delegating able men to distribute the Levites' tithes. And you see how quickly that storehouse is filled up. The people got on board with Nehemiah's corrections. But isn't it interesting that the first thing he says to the leadership is, why have you neglected the house of God? What's the last thing they said in chapter 10? We will not neglect the house of God. Every time Nehemiah first exposes their sin before they come up with a solution, he wants them to see this was your doing. This was disobedience to God. 
He calls the Levites out from the pastures. He restores them to their posts in the temple. And then he finds trustworthy men to give to the Levites the tithe that the people have brought, the grain, the wine, the oils. Okay, whose job had this been? Eliashib. He didn't care about the Levites. He cared about making Tobiah happy. So Nehemiah ousts him from that job and gives it to men who will follow God in this direction. I believe that people had quit giving because their love for God had waned. How do we know this? The Jews' relationship to the temple reflected their relationship to God. If they cared about the temple, it would show that they cared about God. But they were more in love with the gifts that God had given them. Their food, their produce, their land, their livestock. Than they were with the God who had given it to them. So they were withholding these gifts from the temple. By doing that, they're ultimately stopping the holy purposes of God. And then if they did give, if we read through the book of Malachi... He would let us know when they did bring something, it was old, diseased, or defected. That was their offering to God for the Levites. And we can realize a person's devotion to God can be measured by the attitude of their giving. A resource, our resource for generosity doesn't come from our pocketbook. It begins right here in our heart. This is our resource for giving. This is where generosity first begins. Judah's lack of giving revealed she had a lack of love for God. The reality is God would have given them even more if they'd been obedient to his word. Look at verse 8. Oh, I'm sorry, up in your verse sheet, Malachi 3.8. The Lord says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have room enough for it. Then all of the nations will call you blessed because you will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, our lives, I love that description. Our lives are like a delightful land filled with God's bounty. And we are stewards of these things for God's holy purposes. They belong to God. If we find we're loving the gifts from God more than the giver, we might want to check how much we love God. Who is our heart devoted to? What is our heart devoted to? When we contribute to God's kingdom work, it means we care about God. And then he will fill our storehouses with a harvest of righteousness. We reap a huge blessing. Look at 2 Corinthians. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. He will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What could be better than that? You will be made rich in every way so you can be generous 
on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This kind of goes against the health, wealth, prosperity gospel that's out there. Because they, they come so far and then they stop. What do they say? God wants to bless you. Look at this verse. God wants to give you a lot of things. That's what God wants to do. He wants you happy. He loves you. Stop. What, what's the rest of the story? He gives us so we can give it away and accomplish his holy purposes. We get the blessings of spiritual things like righteousness to fill up the empty places in our heart. That's the rest of the story. There's a wonderful woman that comes to church here that I've gotten to know, and she started a business a few years ago. And I love uh, being around her. She just loves God. God has blessed her business beyond anything she could have imagined. And this is what she said to me when I was with her once. What I'm doing now is trying to figure this out. God has blessed me so much with this business. What does he want me to do with all this money? It wasn't about her. She saw it as a responsibility. And she's been buying Bibles up and sending them across the world. She's so excited to take what God's given her and be generous for his holy purposes throughout the world. That's what we're supposed to do. Nehemiah's next discovery is that Judah is robbing God by loving a lifestyle more than God. Judah's sin is ignoring God's Sabbath requirements to do life their way. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kind of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Judah had secularized the Sabbath. They were tired of doing business God's way, so they were acting if the Sabbath was any other day, it was business as usual. You and I know God had been telling them and teaching them over the years, the Sabbath had a holy purpose. It was to be a day of rest for the Jews, reminding them of how God delivered them from slavery. Also for them to observe the example of God who rested after he created the world, to give him honor for a blessed week, to demonstrate to the pagan nations, look, we can rest a whole day and God is good and provides for us to show their distinct faith and be a light to the world, to reflect God and worship Him. It was a spiritual distinction. And I think about the church today. It was an example for us of the rest that comes through Christ after we have been tirelessly striving to do our own holy acts. We rest in the holiness of Christ. They were a holy people, with a holy calling, but they lived no differently than any of the other nations surrounding them. And I have to ask the question, why? Malachi knows. God is using Malachi to expose their hearts. Look at chapter 4 of Malachi in your verse sheet. 
You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, Judah, that it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we're going to call the arrogant blessed, the evildoers that prosper, and even those who challenge God. They escape, and that's how we're going to live. Because we love life and how we live it more than we love God. Personal gain was their goal. God's requirements got in the way. They decided for themselves that they would live for their own selfish reasons. But Nehemiah came on the scene, verse 17. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things? So our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city. Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut, not opened, until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. (laughs) Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath holy. Nehemiah's correction, guarding the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I love this picture of Nehemiah. He does what he does each time. First, he exposes the sin. He wants them to own up for their disobedience. Next, he does what he also does. He reminds them this didn't go too well for the past Jewish people. No, look at our forefathers. It brought God's wrath. Then he waits for the sun to go down before the Sabbath, and then he orders the gates to be shut. And do you know how many angry people there were? Again, he's not winning a popularity contest. This is when people are making money. Not only the Jews, but people coming in from other areas. They ride up to the gates, and they're shut The people are mad. What a shock for the vendors. And some of them just think, I'm just going to camp out here for the night. I will show him. No, he was ready and waiting. He was walking around. He was a force to be reckoned with. He tells them, get lost. Quit sleeping outside these gates or else. I'm not sure what the or else was. Some people think he was going to have them imprisoned. I don't know. Who knows with Nehemiah? By telling the Levites, okay, purify yourself as you guard these gates, he's reminding them, guard the Sabbath. It's a sacred task. They were guarding God's holiness on a holy day. When you and I accepted Christ for our Savior, hopefully we laid aside our old lifestyles to guard the gates of God's holiness. Ephesians 4 tells us, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
we lay aside our old lifestyles to guard the gates of God's holiness, people should be able to look at us and see they don't live like everybody else I know. Where they go, what they do, what they talk about, how they raise their kids. Our lifestyle should be determined by the word of God and point to a holy God. As God's children, we believe God has a distinct lifestyle for us to bless us and to bless the world because we are displaying a holy God. That's how the world knows who God is. An obedient lifestyle is a sacred task. We take it seriously. Um, a group of men just got back from India. You've heard about that in church, and, and Ted got to be there. And it was the greatest story about um, a shepherd there. You know, they have that caste system in India, and nobody really wants to leave the caste because you'd be defying the gods. They put you in this particular place. So all the lower castes are called the untouchables. And there's like 4,000 different lifestyles within the untouchables. Um, and they think of themselves as untouchable. Where they have nothing. Worth nothing. That's what the gods decreed for them. And shepherds fall into that group. It was the greatest story. A shepherd who didn't really uh, know there was any other life except to feel worthless and be a shepherd one day a man handed him psalm 23 and he read that psalm and he looked up at the man afterwards and said there is a god who is a shepherd and the man said yes and then he took him through all the new testament that talked about christ as our shepherd and the man said so what i do reflects a God? No, it reflects the God. And he came to Christ. And now there's a whole group of shepherds that do their job excited because they're reflecting their God. That's what we do. We should do it with that same kind of enthusiasm. Loving God more than our daily life goals. Finally, we see Nehemiah is taking the pulse of Judah's devotion to God. He's appalled to find them robbing God because they are loving love more than they love God. Look at verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. So Judah's sin here, being unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women. Once again, Judah has offended God by picking out who they want to marry themselves, regardless of God's command. And I think the way Nehemiah looks at this is pretty unique. First, he reminds them, this is a sin, Reminds them of their past. This is what happened to Solomon. Here's the consequences of that. The wives led Solomon into sin. The wives introduced him to false gods. 
This is the history of us. But Nehemiah even goes beyond that. He looks at the children of these mixed marriages. He is saying to them, it will mean the corruption of the next generation. The babble of languages among the children of these intermarriage situations, it wasn't cute to hear them babbling. It was a threat. It would mean a steady erosion of Israel's identity at all their level of thinking in another language, speaking in another language. It would mean a loss of understanding or being able to understand the Word of God. So where are these children going to go for their truth and their understanding? To the pagan nations around them. They're going to adopt their ways and their belief. And a single generation of these children could compromise centuries of work in Israel. Nehemiah's correction is to rebuke them and lead them into an oath of purity. Let's look at verse 25. I rebuked them. I called curses on them. I beat some of the men. I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. This is an amazing verse. Okay, remember when Ezra discovered this a few months ago? What did he do? He tore his own clothes. He ripped out his own hair. He sat down appalled. Well, what he did inwardly, Nehemiah just did it to everybody else. <laughs> he just chased people around doing that. Now, I don't think this was an angry, spontaneous reaction. I think he had purpose behind it, just as Jesus did when he came to the temple and overturned the tables. Because he then goes on to explain to them why this isn't a good idea. He, he's like a lawyer. He tells them about their past, tells them the consequences. But he's a returned governor, and he is acting out the discharges of his duties, and different situations call for different strategies. Nehemiah, when it says he pulled out their hair, it probably was just the hair of their beard. And you know why? A man losing hair in his beard was a sign of great disgrace. He wants them to feel disgrace. Disgrace of your disobedience to God. We have to take warning ourselves when it comes to whom we marry. God has given us commands as well. 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? But as Christians, I get this way, don't you get this way? You hear a love story, and you're like, oh, oh, oh I love that. I love, you know, our first question when we know Christians who are getting engaged should be, is the other, is he a believer? Is he a follower of God? But we're just so wrapped up in the love aspect of it. We love love more than God. God has given us direction here. It reminded me of that song that I've mentioned with Debbie Boone used to sing. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. <laughs> yes, Debbie, it can. It can. 
Now here's what God had Paul write in his epistles. If you are married to an unbeliever, don't lose hope. Paul says, be faithful to them. You may win them to Christ by your godly behavior. And God is going to be attentive to your prayers. He's going to bless you. He's going to bless your children. He'll be at work in our marriage. But for those of us who are single, obey God's command. Let God be your wedding coordinator so you can be thinking about the generation that's going to follow. When God's our wedding coordinator, generations to follow will speak of him. They won't be speaking some kind of spiritual babble. They will know the truths of the true God. And I'm not saying your children or mine are going to do everything perfectly, but they will know God's language. Let's preserve that in our marriages. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the Great Awakening in the 1600s, you've probably heard this before, incredible man of God, preacher, his father was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, People have traced that godly family's descendants for 400 years. I won't read you all the list. But because they were obedient to the word of God, there were dozens and dozens of ministers, dozens of missionaries, dozens of theologians that came from that family that loved God. You know, I've been at Christ Chapel, and many of you have long enough to actually see this. It's the coolest thing. If you go in Kathy Burr's office, she has a little picture of her son, Michael, on a shelf. He's probably three years old. Underneath it, it's a picture of him at vacation Bible school. We didn't call it kids camp back then. Someone has written, I will serve God, under the picture of Michael. One day, I was in there and looked closely. It was my handwriting. Michael today runs the high school youth department, and he's raising his own daughter in the ways of God. He knows the language of God. We preserve that by having holy marriages. If God's the center of our marriage, the message of God will remain loud and clear in the world. So marriage is a covenant entered into between a man, a woman, and God. When we leave God out of the equation, we jeopardize the next generation. Okay, I want us to look at how this book closes. Look at verse 30. Okay, Nehemiah says, So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, I assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Nehemiah is not concerned that we all know, I rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. What does he, what does he want everybody to know? I helped with the spiritual condition of Judah. And he did three things. I purified the spiritual leaders. I assigned spiritual duties. I provided for the spiritual future and worship of God's people. But we, after getting to this chapter, have to stand back and say, what about these people? Oh, my gosh. Their track record. It isn't good. Israel seems to be a nation that is doomed. Did you notice I put at the bottom of the outline, to be continued? 
The story of Israel is to be continued. And look at what Malachi prophesies in the last verse. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant will come. No mere restoration of Jerusalem could ever fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of Israel. Someone needed to come who could stand in the place of Israel and render perfect obedience to God. And after the book of Nehemiah closes, after the book of Malachi closes, we have 400 years of silence from uh, God. And that someone who needed to come and stand in the place of Israel, that someone came and was born in a stable in Bethlehem 400 years later. We're going to study him in Luke in the fall, so make sure you plan on coming. Jesus was the new way of salvation apart from the law. He was born of a virgin, brought to the temple as a child, like Malachi 3 says, by Mary and Joseph. And look again at Malachi 3. What does it say about the temple? Does it say the temple? His temple. It's his temple. And he starts going there as a little baby. Because he's going to fulfill all the needs that Israel has. He's born of a virgin, announced by his messenger John, verified to be God himself by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the hope for Israel. Jesus is the hope for the world. And he came to ask us this question, do you love me more than these? Because I have great plans for you. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by our great disobedience. You love us and you provide Christ. We lift his name on high. We ask that you give us the strength to represent him in all we do. We give you glory. We say, come Lord Jesus. We love you. We love you more than these. In Christ's name, amen.